Are you born evil, good, or morally neutral? If you were to look back throughout history, you would see that different people have answered this in many different ways. Thomas Hobbes in his book Leviathan would say that humanity is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. I guess he didn't hang out with NBA basketball players, but Jean-Jacques Rousseau in The Social Contract would actually say that we're born good, but it's society, it's all of the civilization and the constructs that make us evil. But that response beckons the question, how is society so evil? How is civilization so evil if people are good? What is it that happens between people being born good that results in an evil, twisted society? And so he pushes the question back one step farther. One of my favorite politicians throughout history, Ronald Reagan, he's a good politician. He's not a very good theologian because here's what he says. This is the quote when I went to visit the Reagan Memorial Library and even bought cufflinks from the Reagan Memorial Library. I like Ronald Reagan, but here is his quote. It says, I've seen what men can do for each other and do to each other. I've seen war and peace, feast and famine, depression and prosperity, sickness and health. I've seen the depth of suffering and the peak of triumph. And here's the money part of the quote. He says, I know in my heart that man is good. That what is right will always eventually triumph, and I agree with that, and that there is purpose and worth to each and every life, and I agree with that. But is man good? Are we born good? Are we born a blank slate? Are we born neutral, or are we born evil? That is the question I want to address today. It may seem at first glance like a trivial question, but it's not. It may seem like a question that doesn't have a lot of impact, but in fact, I would argue and will argue to you today that what you believe about this particular issue will affect the way you view the world, it will affect the way you live in the world, it will affect the way you see God, the way you see yourself, the way you see others, the way you see salvation. Everything in our worldview flows from how we answer this particular question. So today, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, pull them out and go to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. That's where we'll start as we talk about this particular subject. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. We're going to go through a lot of different scripture passages today as I seek to prove to you that we are born and inherit a sinful nature from Adam. So if you've got a notebook, if you've got a pen and paper handy and you want to write down some of these verses, I'm going to have them up here for you on the screen. You may want to write them down, though, just for your own study. So if I were to give you the short synopsis of what we're going to talk about today, here it is up on the screens. In Adam, we receive condemnation. We inherit death, a sinful nature that leads us to sin against God. In Christ, we receive grace. And through grace, the free gift leads to justification, righteousness, and eternal life. So we start with the first part. In Adam, we receive condemnation. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 17. As we read this text, I want to point out a few things to you. First of all, in this text, the word one is listed 12 different times in these verses. There's a contrast here that appears between Adam and between Christ. 
Nine times the gift or grace is mentioned in these verses, and five times rain is mentioned in these verses. So the context of what we're going to read talks about the one man, Adam, the one man, Christ, the one act of disobedience, the one act of obedience in Christ. It talks about death reigning through Adam. It talks about righteousness and leading to eternal life reigning through Christ. There's a contrast that is set up between the two of them. And what we learn is that in Adam, we inherit that condemnation. We inherit death in a sinful nature. Oh, but in Jesus Christ, who is much more than what Adam ever was, we receive grace and we receive justification and righteousness that leads to eternal life. That's the contrast. So now with that setting, would you stand with me as we read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. It says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not counted where there was no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through that one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Dear Lord, as we look at this text this morning, as we contemplate our own sinfulness. Father, I pray that you would help us just to catch a glimpse of your holiness, of your glory, of how sinful we are. But Lord, that we wouldn't stay there, that Lord, we would also recognize the grace and the mercy and the free gift that you have offered us on the cross and that we might leave today an even greater appreciation of who you are and the grace that you have given us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Now, as as I thought about inherited sin, the original sin that we have inherited from Adam and Adam's trespass, I I thought about what what could I do here to introduce this topic from one of our modern day theologians? Anybody in the room ever listen to Trip Lee? All right. You ever heard his song, Robot? Raise your hand. All right. There's not many of us. All right. Well, here we go. His song, Robot, is actually a song, very well written, with very good lyrics, talking about how he was born as a robot, as a baby, and he didn't have any other option but to sin, 
But then when Christ's grace and Christ's righteousness came along, he ends the song by saying, I am not a robot now. Here are some lyrics from the song. I'm not going to rap it to you this morning because I'm just not. Maybe one day. You know, he was supposed to come speak this semester too, and he had to back out because of a, a concert tour. But we're working on getting him back this fall. So here's his song. Here's what it says. I do want to rap this, but I'm not going to do it because I'll embarrass myself. I'm sitting here, here. no, I'm not going to do it, yeah, no, 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 no. yeah, I I would embarrass everybody if I tried to do that, the the service would be officially over, so, his lyrics say this, he says, hey, I was born less than human, I know it sounds crazy, but I was really born a robot as a baby, no real life in me, I just played my role, no self-control, I just did what I was told, I got my first order, I was just a day old, but I didn't have a chance because my heart was way cold. My heart took the order, I couldn't break the mold, sold under bondage, and I couldn't take control. So I was just chilling in my robot clothes with my robot friends and my robot flows. Living robot ways, because that's all I know, till I heard I could be freed from my robot soul. Now those are lyrics written in a rap song, but how true it is that when we are born as babies, inheriting a sinful nature from Adam, identified with Adam because we have no other choice but to be born with that sinful nature and with death, everyone dies apart from a miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have no other option but to sin. We have no other option but to do what's wrong, to flee away from our Creator until we learn about the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace that can be found in Jesus Christ. And here, as we look at this text, I want to show you the condemnation that we receive in Adam. You can see it on the screen in verse 12. It talks about the fact that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Verse 15, it says that many died through one man's trespass. And verse 16, judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Verse 21, as as sin reigned in death. Here we see our first point, which is that in Adam, we receive condemnation. How would you like to be Adam? How would you like to be the guy that is known in the Bible and everywhere for being the guy that messed it all up? And yet Adam sinned on our behalf. Adam sinned as our representative. There's two theological views of how we sinned in Adam. There's one that's the seminal view that comes from Augustine, and Augustine did use a mistranslation of the Latin where he says, in whom we sinned. So he believed we were actually present in Adam because of our DNA that flows from Adam, that that seminal view is that we were there. Some discount that because he was operating off of a translation of the Latin, but other theologians have held that seminal view as well. Calvin holds that we were there in a federal headship type view, that Adam was our representative, that he was the person appointed over us. And you might think immediately in your mind, wait a second, I don't like the fact that Adam sinned for me. I don't like the fact that Adam messed it up for me. But when we stop and think about this, we see this is actually a mercy or a grace of the Lord. Because the fact that Adam was one representative that messed it all up meant we could have one representative, Christ, who fixed it all. If it was left to me or to you to make sure that we were only judged by what we did right or wrong, we would all mess it up. 
But God in his mercy knew what would happen. He was not surprised. And as Adam was the one representative, federal or seminal representative of the human race who sinned, Jesus Christ later comes as the representative who brings grace, who conquers death, who conquers sin, and who gives us the opportunity to be united with him in his righteousness so that God no longer sees our sinfulness. You think back to the one act. You think back to Genesis. You get a picture in your mind of what happens there as Eve walks up and she looks at this fruit and on this fruit, there's a serpent there. It's probably not a serpent like we think of a serpent these days because we usually don't hang around serpents. At least most of us don't hang around snakes too often. And the serpent was crafty and cunning and was a beautiful animal. It either had legs or wings or something because its curse was to crawl in its belly. So there was something different about this animal. And this animal began to talk to Eve, which I find strange and odd enough that an animal would talk to Eve and Eve wouldn't respond uh, wondering what in the world this animal is doing talking to her. But we learn in Revelation that that serpent was the serpent of old. It was Satan who was there, who was tempting her, who was asking her questions. And he asked her the question to start off with, what has God commanded? Eve gives the command back. And as you know, she takes it one step further. She says that we're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or touch it. We don't know why she took it one step further. We don't know if the Lord, if God had walked with her and told her the commands. We know that God had told Adam the commands. Perhaps in telling Adam the commands, Adam didn't do a good job communicating them to Eve. Perhaps Adam went farther in communicating them to Eve so that he added a legalistic restriction. Perhaps Eve added her own legalistic restriction. Perhaps there was confusion. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us there in Genesis. But what we know is that in her response, she added a legalistic step of not even touch the fruit. The text tells us that she then took a bite of the fruit. It tells us that Adam was with her. All it says is with her. We don't understand or know exactly how far away or whether he could overhear the conversation. So we don't know for sure whether Adam standing by watching Eve as she had a conversation with a serpent. We don't know if he abdicated his responsibility to protect or to lead. We don't know if he was, could hear what was taking place and he had a failure to confront that he didn't step up like he should. It's possible certainly that that was the case. What we do know from the text in the New Testament is that Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Adam saw that Eve had eaten of that fruit, the forbidden fruit. And when Eve handed the fruit to Adam, Adam took of that fruit and willingly knew that he had a choice. He could follow in Eve's direction and Eve's footsteps. He could do what was wrong or he could follow what God had said. And he chose, as we all affirm Adam's sin with our own at some point in time, to eat of that forbidden fruit. And it's at that moment that Adam eats of the fruit that their eyes were open. God comes looking for them. He says, where are you? We know that God didn't need to know where they were. This wasn't a game of cosmic hide and seek. God knew where they were, but as God often does with us too, he prompts our hearts with questions. And he says, where are you? And they're hiding. They're hiding because they're naked and they're ashamed. And God says, who told you you were naked? Who told you this? knows the answer to that question as well. He talks to Adam. He says, Adam, what's going on here? And just as we all do, every last one of us, we pass the blame. God, it's not my fault. It's that woman you made. 
It's her fault. We do this, we do this from a very early age. My son's four. He has imaginary friends that cause bad things to happen sometimes. How many of you had imaginary friends that cause bad things to happen sometimes? If you didn't have imaginary friends, you would still say the devil made me do it, right? It was my sister. It was my brother. It was somebody else. We all pass the blame. We're all good at passing the blame. And so Adam passes the blame. It's her fault. Move on down the line. Eve, what's going on? God, it's that serpent's fault. You know what this really means, right? God, it's your fault. If you hadn't created Eve and you hadn't created that serpent, if you hadn't put us in this situation, if you haven't created that tree, then it wouldn't have happened. So God, my sin is ultimately your fault. It's not my fault. It's your fault. And that's what we tend to do when we respond to sin in the wrong way is we push it back on God or we push it off on others and we refuse to respond in the right way with humility and repentance, crying out to God because of the wickedness of our own souls. We push it off onto others. This is what we see happening here in Genesis. We see the curse that then comes. We see that God in his grace puts a flaming sword to keep them from eating from the tree of life. He kicks them out of the garden. We see then throughout the story of the Old Testament and the New Testament a return to the promised land, a restoration of what God originally intended. We see from the very beginning that sin caused death, and through that sin, we all have inherited a sinful nature, and that the story of the Bible, beginning in Genesis 3.15 with the Proto-Evangelium, is how God is going to conquer sin, conquer death, and restore mankind to where he should originally have been. We have scripture references that indicate this to us as well. Psalm 14, 2 and 3, and I'm just going to scroll these on the screen, so if you want to write them down, you can write them down and look them up later for yourself. But Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says this, says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. Any of us. Are there any of us who seek the Lord? Anybody who seeks after God. And verse 3 says, they all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And in our rebellious spirits, we think, wait a second, I know people who do good things, but even the motive of our hearts when we do things sometimes that seem like good acts are rebellious motives in our own hearts as we want others to think high thoughts of us. Apart from the Holy Spirit working through us, there's no good. There's no good that we could do. Psalm 51 verses 1 through 4 a great chapter with David and his repentance over his sin with Bathsheba. In verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. You'll notice in this five verses here, there are three different words that talk about sin. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Three different words there for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Those are some famous verses there that indicate that from our very birth, we have a sinful nature. We have a nature that tells us how to do wrong, not how to do right. You say, why is this so important? We'll get to that. We'll get to it. Let me make my case that we have to 
recognize our sinfulness here. In this particular text, just as an aside, you see transgression, iniquity, and sin, three different words. Transgression means rebellion. It means a betrayal, the breaking of a pact. You see also here iniquity, which means the twisting. It means the disfiguring. It means the deviating from what is straight and true. And sin here, one of the more common uses is missing the mark. So you think about pulling back that bow and arrow to to sight in on a particular target. And as you let that arrow fly, you miss the mark, either because you were aiming at the wrong target or because of, of sinful rebellion in your life, you miss the mark. Jeremiah 17, 9 says in a verse that we quote frequently, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And how depressing is that verse to read about all of us? Romans 3, 23 tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 tells us that you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the curse of this world following the prince of the power of the air. You see here an evil trinity that takes place. You see here the world, the world which tempts us away. Not talking about the world meaning people, but talking about the world meaning the temptations that draw us to do what's wrong. The prince of the power of the air and then later the passions of our own flesh, our own sinful desires. It says we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 The last verse I have for you to prove this, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So hopefully by this point, you would say, I understand I'm a sinner. I understand I was born with a corrupt nature that leads me to run away from God and I affirm Adam's sin with my own sin as I reject my creator. Understanding that we have that corrupt nature inside of us. Understanding that that corrupt nature does not go away when we are saved. But when we are saved, when we repent of those sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we still have fleshly temptations, but the Holy Spirit comes to live within us so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can put to death those deeds of the body, as Romans 8 says. We can live a victorious Christian life, but not in our own power, but only through the power of the Holy Spirit. But understanding that that nature, that old fleshly desire still lives in us so that when we try to do things in our own flesh, we end up with wretched person that I am who will rescue me from this body of death makes a difference in your Christian walk. Understanding that you have a proclivity to sin and that I have a proclivity to sin changes the way we live our life. How? Well, I understand that my first inclination is not to respond correctly to my own sinfulness. So I started thinking, what are some things I do? So make it about me so I'm not, you don't think I'm criticizing you. What are some things I do 
Well, often I minimize my sin. I will be convicted of something I'm doing, and in my own life, I will minimize my sin, and I'll say to myself, you know, considering all things, that sin's not that bad of a sin, right? It's just, it's not as bad as some other people's sin. I mean, I look out in the world and see some of these other people, and they're bad. But, you know, me, my sin is not nearly as bad as theirs is. How many of you do that? You with me? Am I alone? I think this is probably one of the sins we struggle with the most. Because that sin turns into a sin of pridefulness, a sin of self-righteousness, a sin of arrogance as we sit back and think that we are higher than others and we sit back and almost condemn others in their sinfulness, not recognizing that our sinfulness is just as offensive to a holy and righteous God as somebody else's sinfulness. I often legitimize my sin. Well, if you'd been in that situation, you'd had everything happen in just those scenarios, then you would have done the same thing. I often legitimize my sin if I get angry, if I get upset, if I get mad, if I respond in the wrong way. But, but that sh- the situation made me do it. The situation caused me to respond in this. I rationalize my sin. Oh, but you don't understand the motives. The motives were not evil. The motives were pure. And so I rationalize sin away. I even sometimes look at my own life and, and say I'm victimized by my sin. Do you ever do that? I was born as a baby. That's in the song. I was born liking violence. I don't know why. I like the Avengers. My favorite Avenger is probably Captain America, but a close second is Hulk because Hulk smashes. I like for Hulk to smash. I play football because it was a legal way to hit people. I like defense. I didn't like offense. Why do I want to block a guy? Why do I want to sit two feet against a guy and then push and do? Let me play strong safety where I can run and hit somebody as hard as I possibly can. Lower the boom on them. I liked martial arts. One of the things the Lord has had to do in my life, in my sanctification process, is help me not to love violence is to help me not to take joy in violence. It's to help me to realize that losing your temper is a sin, that we can't lose control and be angry. We are to be angry and sin not, but we are not to lose control with our own anger. How do we respond properly to sin? It's God's way. It's humbleness. It's brokenness. It's true heartfelt repentance that says, I agree with you, God, about my sin. It's prayerfulness. It's tearfulness. It's remorse. It's life change. That's how we respond. And so when you do things that are wrong, the response that we want from you, if you get caught in something, is not for you to come and to justify it and to rationalize it and to legitimize it and to blame somebody else. The response that we want, the response that God wants is for you to come and repent and be remorseful and to change. We want you to grow to be more like God. I want in my own life for me to continually grow to be more like God. I want to overcome my sins. So the sins I struggle with today are not going to be the same sins I'm struggling with five to 10 years from now. I want to grow in my walk with Christ. Is that where you are? All right, what are the applications? What does this really affect? I've got several listed for you. I don't have time to spend too long on each one of them, but 
our understanding of God. Who do we sin against? David says, my sin is against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Sin is primarily sin because it's against God who is holy. So a biblical worldview, understanding that is understanding the story of sin. God's just payment for sin, how God demands a payment for sin and how he provides that payment through Jesus Christ. It helps us to understand ourselves. And here's where I wanna make a point to you. Every morning, I start off every morning by reading my Bible. Why do I start off every morning by reading my Bible? Because I am convinced at how sinful my heart is and how deceitfully wicked it is and how I need to renew my mind daily, Romans 12, 2. How I need to renew my mind and focus upon God in order to live a life that particular day that glorifies God. And if I don't start by reading scripture, if I don't start by meditating on God's word, if I don't start by prayer, to God, then my day is going to be wrecked. My day is going to be ruined. Now, some of you may do it at night, and if that works for you, then that's okay. But for me, I'm probably more wicked than you are, and I need to start off every morning in God's Word, meditating on the Word, meditating on the Lord. If you understand your sinful inclinations to run away from God, you understand the importance, not just the importance, the necessity the absolute necessity of every day spending time in the Word of God, seeing what God is saying to you, what the Holy Spirit is convicting you of, and how you need to grow to be more like God. If you understand yourself, it will cause you to understand and have a desire to hide God's Word in your heart so that you might not sin against Him. If you understand the temptation that we are all prone to give into, you understand why this book is so important for your life change and why it's the power of the Holy Spirit and not our own internal desire. I would love to just take a poll and find out how many of you have a consistent, quiet time every single day, but I'm not. But I'll say this to you, if you do not have a consistent, quiet time every single day, if you do not have a consistent time of reading your Bible, a planned, structured time of reading your Bible, praying to God, meditating on His Word, memorizing His Word, then I would say to you, I don't know that you have realized the seriousness of your own sinful nature yet. I think it's that important. I don't think you can live a victorious, mature Christian life if you don't meditate on the Word, read the Word, stay in the Word. If you don't get anything else from understanding your sinful nature is understand the necessity of the word for your life to help you live a life that glorifies God. Your understanding of others. Too often, I think we single out one sin as a sin that's worse than all other sins and we point to people with that one sin and we think we are so much better than the other person where if we understand the depravity of our own hearts and how we run away, we could come to each other and say, you've got sin struggles, I've got sin struggles, we all have sin struggles, let's plead to the mercy of the cross. We don't minimize sin, we don't make peace with our sin, but we also don't look down with a haughty spirit on other people who are struggling and think we're better than them. We are all sinners. We are all in the same boat. Your faculty, your staff, your president, your, everybody here is a sinner. We are nothing more than sinners saved by grace. And so we don't consider ourselves better than you in the spiritual life. Hopefully, we may be a little farther along the journey of sanctification. But we are all sinners in need of the grace of Christ. Understanding of salvation. If you talk to people, if you share your faith a lot, you'll often talk to somebody and you'll ask them a question. What is it that uh, you, makes you think that you're going to heaven? Or if you were to stand before the gates of heaven and Peter were to say, why should we let you in? Or any number of those type questions. And you were to answer, what would your answer be? And a lot of people will respond, I think I'm a good person. Well, that's what this is about. 
we're not good people. So how you understand salvation is affected by what you understand about your own sinfulness, your own sin nature. Anybody here like Way of the Master? You follow Way of the Master? Way of the Master is an entire evangelistic methodology that talks to people about the Ten Commandments and how you've broken the Ten Commandments. The whole purpose of that is when somebody talks to you and you ask them, why is it that you're going to get to heaven? I'm a good person. Really? Are you a good person? Well, let's walk through the Ten Commandments. Have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done this? And then you say to them, well, you just admitted that you're a lying, cheating, murdering thief. And you get to the point where they realize I'm not a good person after all. But they have to realize I'm not a good person before they realize that they need salvation. And that's why all of the talk that you'll see from some preachers, which is just all happy about how great everything is and it's all good news, it doesn't help people get to a point to recognize their sin and recognize their need for a Savior. We have good news, but we need to get right with the bad news before we recognize why we need the good news. And we need to understand how bad the bad news is so that then we can give praise to God for how great the good news is. His grace and His glory is amazing. And part of the reason it's so amazing is because of how wretched we are as rebels against the King and against our Creator. It affects your understanding of salvation. It affects your understanding of society, politics, and the separation of powers that our founders put in place. It affects your understanding of economics and policies. It affects everything in life when you understand that we are born with a sinful nature inclining us to sin. It has everyday implications for things like how you rear your children or how you parent and you say, I don't have children yet. Most of you one day will. And when you think about how you're gonna rear a child, You think about understanding that that sinful nature inclines them to do certain things and it's our job to shepherd their hearts towards God. It's our job to point out that sinful nature when it acts out and when it comes forward in them and to help them learn how to minimize their sinful nature in their own life and how to live a life that's glorifying to God. That's part of the parenting process is that you love your children and you love them in such a way that you want them to be directed to glorify God with their life. Quickly. Let me not leave you with the bad portion of what we've talked about, but let's move to the good part. Point number two, and it's a short one. In Christ, we receive grace. Look at this passage. Verse 15 says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Verse 15, it says, the grace of God and the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Verse 16, it says, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we come back to our main point, which is that in Adam, we receive condemnation. We inherit death, a sinful nature which leads us to sin against God. That's who we are as humanity, sons and daughters of Adam. But by repenting of your sins and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can then be united with Christ so that you receive grace and through grace, the free gift that leads to justification, righteousness, and eternal life. Now, there may be somebody in this room 
that you have never really contemplated the seriousness of your own rebellion against God. You have never really experienced a time where you felt the weight of your own sin, where you repented of that sin, you agreed with God, you put your faith and trust in what He has accomplished on the cross, and then at that point you were united with Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live within you to testify with your spirit that you were a son or daughter of the King, so that you could then live a victorious Christian life in Christ. If you're here and your normal response to sin is to ignore it, to justify it, to legitimize it, to push it away, if you've never been broken over your sin before God and humbled before God, then I encourage you to talk to somebody. Faculty and staff all around this campus would love to talk with you about where you are. If you're here and I assume the majority maybe all, but at least the vast majority of you are believers in Christ. You're like me. You struggle with the residual effect of a sinful nature. Recognize it. Make sure that you are fighting the battle wisely by reading God's Word, by meditating on His Word, by memorizing His Word, by praying and asking for the Holy Spirit to help you have victory in your life. That's what we want for you. The story is the story of an inherited guilt, but it doesn't end there. Because there's a Savior who comes down from heaven in virgin birth, fully God and fully man, and lives a sinless life. And in that sinless life, he had no bed, no place to lay his head, no place he could call his own. He was spit upon, he was ridiculed, he was crucified for our transgressions in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Christ on that cross took the penalty of my sin and the penalty of your sin, and he took that, and then he was buried into a grave dead. But three days later, he got up out of the grave and he conquered death so that now he has conquered sin and he has conquered death. He has paid the penalty for me and for you so that we do not have to bear the own penalty of our sin. He has conquered death so that we too will be resurrected with him. As 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? Jesus has conquered it all. So here this morning, even as we recognize our own sinfulness, we look to the mercy of the cross and to Jesus and we give him honor and we give him praise because he has paid the penalty for your sin and my sin. He has conquered death that we inherited from Adam so that we too will raise, be raised again with him to live forever and to enjoy him. That's the God that we are here to live for, to serve, to worship, and to glorify. Does that excite your heart this morning? We in Adam receive condemnation. We inherit death and a sinful nature that leads us to sin against God. Oh, but in Christ, we receive grace, the free gift that leads to justification, righteousness, and eternal life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for the free gift. We thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be at a place like Cedarville. Where, Father, even though we talk about our sinful nature, we know that we are all sinners. Lord, I know that we have students, faculty, and staff that have a desire to follow you, to love you, and to glorify you with their life. 
So, Lord, I pray for myself today. I pray for all of them that you would help us to do just that. Lord, that you would, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to live lives that overcome sin, resist sin, that flee from temptation. Lives that in word and deed testify to your greatness, your grace, your mercy, your glory. Lord, help us not to waste our lives. Help us to make a difference. Help us to be part of spreading the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.